great to be back this morning to open the Word of God together. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, you may not know this, but we are roughly 75 hours into our study of the Gospel of Luke. We have spent that much time already here in this book. I was saying to my wife this morning, that's almost as many hours as we spent in the entire book of Revelation. when We preached through Revelation some years ago, so the Lord has much for us to learn here in the Gospel of Luke, and it's been a joy just going through that. We come this morning once again to a rather fascinating portion of Scripture, and in many ways it is an example to us that the glory of God is visible at all times. The glory of God is visible at all times. I want us to turn our attention to verses 37 through 45. And I want to begin by reading this for us, and then we'll just follow through the narrative and that which is contained in the other Gospels of Matthew and Mark in order to just draw out some implications for us. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. It says, On the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at that he w- at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Last time we were here, we were at the top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John as they encountered the moment of Jesus unveiling His glory. They were having a mountaintop experience, and oftentimes we can sit here in our own time and we can say, boy, I wish I was there. Mountaintop experiences are wonderful events both literally and figuratively. I have stood at the top of several mountains in our own country as I was a young boy backpacking with my father, even going to the top of Mount Whitney in California 
and looking out over the landscape. And it's a wonderful time to be at those places, those mountaintop experiences, whether physically or even experientially by way of a figure in the sense that you go somewhere special, you do something special, you are with some people in a special kind of way, you have a moment in your life that is special to you. Those times when we experience things that we do not want to end. Times with people or times in some kind of solitude or events where we spiritually grow in ways that are like none other. These kinds of things in our lives, we don't want to end. We would we just like to remain there. Remain in this place all the time. And with that experience and we have those moments, we want it just to continue. We don't want to stop. But life isn't like that. Just like a well-deserved and enjoyed vacation, vacations come to an end. Life isn't always a vacation. All mountaintop experiences come to a close. That's what it was like for Peter, James, and John as they were with Jesus on the mountain. They had just had, in a physical kind of way, a mountaintop experience, and a figurative kind of way, they had a mountaintop experience. They saw the glory of God in its blinding light, and they weren't consumed by it. They were able to to look at Jesus Christ in in His glory. They saw Moses and Elijah who were alive and they were speaking with Jesus about what was to come. They were enveloped in the cloud and heard the voice of God the Father speak to Jesus saying, this is my Son, the Chosen One, listen to Him. It was a mountaintop experience like no other. And it would have, in fact, an impact upon their life all the way to the end of their physical life. And while they would have loved to stay on the mountain in that experience, as we even saw Peter wanting to build places of dwelling for all of them there, they couldn't do that. That wasn't the plan of God. And so they came down the mountain with Jesus. And of course, our text introduces us to what happens immediately once again spectators of the glory of God on display, here they are now once again confronting life. And so I just want us to to look for a moment at the scene. This is what's going on. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, they had been up there seemingly for a day. They come down and a large crowd meets them And a man in the crowd is shouting, saying to Jesus, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And the Spirit seizes him, and suddenly he screams, and it throws him into convulsions. He's foaming at the mouth. Only with difficulty does it leave him and mauling him as it does. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't do it. Jesus gives that rather shocking answer, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? From the mountain high experience of being with Jesus and seeing his glory on display 
Now here is Peter, James, and John back down the mountain into the struggle of everyday life. You ever wondered as you read the Scriptures, why, why did it happen this way? What, what was going on in all of this? I believe that in the plan of God, this contrast is intentional. It's intentional. Right? Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus. I want you to know everything about Jesus. I want, to, want you to have a certainty about who Jesus is, all that you've heard about Him. This is, this is to show us Jesus Christ. Peter and James and John have seen the glory of Christ in the heights. They have, they have gone to the top, but now they will see the glory of God exercised among all of us. They'll see His glory exercised in normal, everyday life. You can see the contrast a bit more vividly in Mark's Gospel, actually. Luke doesn't give us all of the detail that Mark does. In fact, Mark says that that the other disciples were having a a heated discussion with, with the scribes. They Scribes were saying to the other disciples, see, I told you you couldn't do it. Told you you couldn't cast out demons. I mean, that's, that's how the discussion, that's the implications of how Mark relays what's going on there. You couldn't do it. And so they're having this heated discussion with them as to why they couldn't cast this demon out of this man's son. And the problem was a faith problem. It was a faith problem. Luke doesn't tell us about the necessity of faith that the disciples were not exercising. Luke doesn't give us those details in their attempts to cast out this demon. And the question I have always when I'm reading is why? Why didn't Luke tell us those things? Well, I believe Luke does that for the simple reason that it is... His inspired desire, right? This is the Spirit moving them along to give us the Scriptures. It is Luke's inspired desire to have us focus on the glory of God. Mark has us focus more on the reality of their faith issue. Luke is having us focus on the glory of God that's on display. And it's on display in similar fashion as it was on the mountain. You say, why do you say that? Because when you look at the original language of this text, the same words used in verse 43, where it says, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The words used there are the same words that Peter uses to describe the mountaintop experience that he had in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So when Peter says in verses in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 to 17 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty that word majesty is the same word in the original language as it is here in verse 40 <coughs> verse Uh, 43, where it says they were amazed at His greatness, at the greatness of God, the majesty of God. They're amazed at what Jesus is doing 
And they are describing it as the majesty of God, the same thing Peter says about being an eyewitness of the glory of Christ. He says, when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter says God even used that same to describe God in the same kind of way. God the Father is the majestic glory. Jesus Christ is revealing the glory of God because He is God incarnate. And the people are recognizing that in verse 43. They are amazed at the majestic glory or the greatness of God. So Luke wants us, and he wants his friend Theophilus, to realize that all that Jesus does is a reflection of that very reality, the majestic glory of God. This is God on display. And we must realize that it's not just Peter, it is not just James, it is not just John that got to see the glory of Christ. We don't need to say, I wish I had been there. Why? Because Christ's glory is visible today. So if we have that in our minds, we can look at this text with our eyes wide open. Surely Peter, James, and John would have had a lively conversation as they came down from the mountain. I'm not sure how far the walk was, but it wasn't too far. They would have been certainly talking about what they had seen. They didn't understand it. They didn't have a full comprehension of it all, but they would have been excited, not wanting it to end. But when they get down the mountain, when they get down the bottom with Jesus Christ, they are once again faced with life on earth. That's why it says, on the next day they came down, there's a large crowd to meet him. The scene is one of desperation. The other disciples had made attempts at casting out this demon, but they could not. To no avail, the demon did not leave. And because of their inability, an argument ensues seemingly between them and the scribes, the people of the law. Mark 9, verses 14 and 15, describe it to us. I'm not going to read it for us. You can look in your own time, but it's there. And apparently, above all of the argument comes the voice of this father concerning his son. A man from the crowd shouts, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. If we were to harmonize all the three gospel records that have this account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's really a dramatic and sad story. At times, the demon takes control of this boy and he throws him to the ground in convulsions. It says here in Luke's Gospel that there are times when he's foaming at the mouth. He grinds his teeth and stiffens up like a board, Mark 9 verse 18 says. He has been thrown into fires. He oftentimes is thrown into the water. His body is most likely scarred because of all of that. He has even been left deaf and mute, Mark 9.25 says. So it's really a pathetic and sad scene. 
And the disciples have been unable to do anything to help. Why? Seems rather strange in many ways. They had been given authority in the past. In fact, chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, we saw that. Jesus sent them out and they had authority to cast out demons. So how come they are unable to do it now? How come with this one? Well, I think verse 41 gives us a clue. And Jesus answers and says to the man, you unbelieving and perverted generation. He's talking to all of the people, including the disciples. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? What was the reason? The reason is simply that one word that all mankind has as a blinding reality in their heart. Unbelief. In other words, a refusal to believe. Now think about it. The disciples didn't fail because they didn't make an attempt. They had made numerous attempts. I had asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. That the, the assumption there with those words and that response is simply that I asked them over and over again. They tried over and over again, but it wouldn't happen. So they didn't fail because they didn't make an attempt. No, they tried. They tried and they tried and they tried, probably doing similar things that they had done before when Jesus had sent them out, thinking that somehow their technique would work. That wasn't the problem. Their problem was that they had gone from trusting in God to believing in themselves. They were unbelieving. In fact, Mark's account says that they lacked prayer. They lacked prayer. Which is to say that they lacked faith. You lack prayer, guess what you lack? Faith. Why? Because true prayer is an act of faith, is it not? Prayer is an act, beloved, of dependency upon God. Or we could say it another way. Pray in faith. Pray in faith. And I think about how quickly we drift into unbelief after we have seen God work. These guys had walked with Jesus for some time now. They had seen many, many things that Jesus had done. And here they are drifting into unbelief. That's how we are. We see God work. We see God do many things. We see God even answer previous prayers. And yet we drift into unbelief. Think about how quickly we drift. For them, it has only been a week. One week. And quickly they are already depending more on themselves than on God. Jesus uses some pretty strong words. Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. The word perverted can be translated twisted. Maybe some of your translations even have that word. Or crooked. Jesus says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. An interesting form of phraseology there because the same words are words that God used when he spoke of the people of Israel years before as they were under the leadership of Moses wandering in the desert. 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, and Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, he called them a crooked and twisted generation. In other words, the people of God had refused to trust him, and in doing so, they had become faithless and twisted. They had abandoned God, and the result was crookedness. It was perversion. Beloved, it's that which always comes with unbelief. You don't believe, you will be twisted. Unbelief always produces that which is crooked. And I love this because what does Jesus do with that which is crooked and faithless? Well, he calls them to himself. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? And the very next phrase has so much grace in it. Bring your son here. Bring your son here. And in doing that, we can see once again the glory of God on display. Verse 42 says, while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Mark's gospel says it this way, he fell on the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Mark 9 verse 20. The grammar tells us that these actions when he had the demon were continual actions. This was an ongoing reality. There was never really any relief at all. Maybe some times of unanimation, but never really any relief from it at all. So we can only imagine in our own hearts how this father would have felt seeing his only son like this each and every day. It's a horrific life. And Jesus enters the scene and the reality of the text here in the sentence says it all. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. You notice between Jesus rebuking the unclean spirit and healing the boy, there is no time frame. There is no, well, wait a minute, just wait a few weeks and everything will get better. This is not here, take your antibiotic and your infection will go away. This is immediate, it is complete, it is full. It is Jesus Christ's glory on display. We say, wow. Wow. I, I trust we all realize as we're looking at this, we realize the boy is not partially healed. This isn't a partial fulfillment. This is a full and complete healing. He gave him back to his father. In fact, the grammar here in many ways indicates that it wasn't simply a physical healing, but it was a spiritual healing as well. He gave him to his father, not just physically healed, but spiritually healed. You can almost hear the people cheering. And then the, the punchline comes in verse 43, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. 
They were all amazed at the glory of God. That which was seen on the mountain is now on display for everybody to see. This is the beauty of this passage. The glory of God brings about deliverance and change. That's what does it. And that's the point. You see, we look at a text like this and we read through a text like this and we say, wow, I wish I'd been there. I wish I had seen what Peter and James and John got to see on the mountain. I mean, we think about the scene. We think about all that's going on. We even maybe go back in our minds to Exodus and and hear Moses say, I want to see your glory. And God said, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'm going to let my my." My backside passed by you, and he sees the attributes of God, as it says in the text, the, the, the goodness of God, the, the mercy of God, all these things pass by, and we go, man, I wish I would have been there. The reality is, beloved, that his glory is on display with us today. It is visible, listen, it is visible in the young person who is delivered from their unbelief and their perversion to follow after the living God. The glory of God is seen in the person whose marriage is destroyed because of selfishness and secrecy, and yet by God's grace... They're taken out of that crooked and twisted way of thinking and their life is transformed by the touch of Jesus as He brings them to belief. Beloved, the glory of God is seen in the life of the one who is a slave to drugs, a slave to alcohol, a slave to pornography who has been set free by the power of Christ as they trust Him in salvation. Each and every one of us sitting here today, we've had a first-hand sight of the glory of God on display in the spiritual healing of our own life. You look in the mirror and you see yourself and you realize how you could be had not God and His grace made you alive. In fact, we experience the glory of God as we sit here this morning in our corporate time of worship as we gather together as the body of Christ in this place and we worship and see Jesus shine upon our lives. As we talk about Jesus Christ and revel in the honor and glory of Jesus Christ from His Word and then we go from this place and you and I, much like Moses as he came down from the mountain, we are reflectors of that glory as we share the life-giving truth of the Gospel with others who are in a crooked and twisted generation. As Christians, we are partakers of His glory. It is by His grace, it is by His doing, and the light of Christ dwells in us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's our task. Our task is, It is our duty 
the Apostle Paul said, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Just as from the Lord. So as we grow in Christ, we are continuing in our trust in Him. His glory shines in us and we shine the character of Christ to others. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says it this way, Do all things without grumbling or complaining, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, get this, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. That's us. We've seen the glory of God. We are reflectors of the glory of God. And notice, notice lastly, that the glory comes again. Notice what he says. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, verse 43, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They didn't understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. This is so intriguing. Why? Because this is a basic Christian truth. In fact, what Jesus said is a summary of the gospel. Here's how it's recorded in Mark's gospel. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Luke just gives a synopsis. Luke just gives us that final thing. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And the word delivered there means all of those things. He's going to be killed, but he's going to rise again. Let this sink into your ears. Here's how I would have said it to my own sons. Let this get into your thick skull. This is what God is saying to us. Let this get into your head. To know Jesus Christ by faith is eternal life. This is essential Christian truth that we must be preaching. This is essential Christian truth that we must not simply be preaching to others outside, but we must be preaching to ourselves every day so that we might not ever forget and become thick-skulled, dull of mind, perverse, crooked, unbelieving, It's interesting, too, because Jesus had already told them these things. Remember back in verse 22? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. This isn't new news. And they missed the point. And so Jesus says it again. I was thinking about that today as we were downstairs and kids were 
being talked about in reference to their Sunday school. And I thought to myself, man, how much time do we spend in the study of material that have nothing to do with except this earth? God gave us one book. Just one. 66 small little chapters in one small book. And how much do we not know it? These guys were walking with Jesus. Jesus is speaking to them constantly. He's speaking in clear language and they just don't get it. So Jesus says it again. God gave us one book. We hear it over and over and over again. And here we're like them. They don't understand it. And they're afraid to ask. You ever wonder why they were afraid to ask? You get a lot of reasons in some of the commentaries that like to talk about these things. I tend to believe that it had more to do with what these words meant in reality. And they just didn't want that reality. They were afraid to ask because that reality would affect them. They're still in denial about the plan of God. I was thinking about, that's the natural impulse of an unbelieving heart. That's the natural impulse when we're not believing God, right? It's our fallenness. We want to avoid the inevitable. They were afraid to ask because they didn't want to know. In fact, the text says it was concealed from them. That's not Jesus concealing it. What was concealing it was their unwillingness to know and to embrace what was to come. It was their doubt, their unbelief that was concealing the understanding from them. They still wanted the kingdom to come their way. They didn't want to ask because they were afraid to have their plan crushed. It was easier to live in their little world of fantasy rather than to understand the truth. Why? Because truth meant change. That's what happens today. We'd rather live in our little moral system of fantasy world than actually understand what the Bible says and what it means by what it says and then live that out. Why? Because if we understood it, we have to actually change. Far too often we're like the cartoon of the ostrich who puts his head in the sand in hopes that everything will go away, right? As long as I don't see it, it's not happening. We're like that. We avoid the inevitable in order to not have us face the truth. People are like that with the gospel. They fear that if they honestly investigate the truth of the gospel, if they honestly ask the questions of it, they might find out that it's true might find out that what God says actually is true, and they would rather live in their facade of fantasy rather than in truth. It's easier that way. But we know better. That kind of thinking is spiritual suicide. The only cure is to face the truth and look to Christ. And when we do, we no longer fear the truth. The disciples are afraid to ask Jesus because they were beginning to realize that the fate of Jesus had implications for them also. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Let it get in your head. 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Listen, this is going to happen. I've told you it before. I'm telling you now, this is going to happen. Whatever you think the kingdom is going to be, that ain't how it happened. And we're following the plan of God. This is the plan of God. It's going to happen. And that has implications for you. Listen, you believe upon Jesus Christ, there are implications in your life. It isn't attached to Jesus to your life and nothing. Go on living the way you want. No. It's what we have with Christ. We have His death, we have His burial, we have His resurrection. Implications are for our life as much as they were for His. That's exactly what Ephesians says, right? We've died with Christ. So beloved, we have seen His glory. We may sit here today and go, boy, I wish I'd seen it. I wish I'd been there. I wish, I wish, I wish. We say that through all kinds of things we read in the Bible. No, we don't have to be there. We are seeing it. We are Living His glory. Or maybe we're just afraid to ask the question. Maybe we're afraid of the implications. Maybe we don't like what Jesus says. We need to. We need to. It's our unbelief that keeps us from that. It's a sad reality when people won't believe the truth, when they refuse to believe the truth because they just don't want the implications of the truth in their life. But when we believe the truth, we realize the implications have everything for us. We turn to Christ, follow Christ. So wherever the Lord went... His glory was on display. Let that be true of us. Let that be true of us. Oh, sure, we don't have the power to remove demons. That's not our ability. We haven't been given that. We resist the devil and he flees from us, Paul said in Ephesians. Right? We put on the full armor of God. We we trust what His Word says. We take Him at His Word. Let that be true of us who believe. <laughs> it's always amazing to me when I read the, the Gospel because right after this, they just start arguing about who's the greatest. They start shoving and pushing, you know. Oh, no, I want to be in front. We're just like they are. Well, let's prepare our hearts to go before the Lord in the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the glory of Christ. We thank you that your glory is on display in the very reality of our changed life as believers. That we are a reflection of your glory. You tell us we are to live that way. We are to be those who follow after you, revealing the reality that you have changed us. Oh, surely we don't have the details here, but this man surely would have went away proclaiming the greatness of God. This young boy would have been changed forever. 
simply because you went to him and called him to yourself. Lord, we thank you that in Christ we have life, that he is the one who has paid it all. That through Christ we have new life in you and we can reflect your glory. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to do that. We praise you for all of these things. And we will do that unto all eternity because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.